Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So in the Torah portion this week, so we heard it described on this morning, but hopefully you read for yourself this week, or at least listened to it this week. You know that it starts right in the middle of a story. It starts in the middle of this incident that we have with Pincus. In fact, the main action of the incident occurred actually at the end of last week's readings, where we see that Pincus pierces this Israelite named Zimri, who has brought a Midianite woman before the entrance of the tabernacle, before Moses. And then this week's reading starts actually with the aftermath of that incident. And we see how God blesses Pincus and his descendants because of the zeal that he demonstrated for the Lord. When we read this portion of Torah dealing with Pincus, it's easy to focus on those actions of zeal that Pincus had, his desire and the actions that came from that desire to ultimately what he was trying to do, what he was doing is he was preserving the holiness of the tabernacle. He was in a sense defending the holiness of God. Not that God needs anyone to defend it, but it certainly is a great way of honoring him when you seek to defend his holiness. And it'd be easy to um, develop whole teachings just on that. In fact, I, you know, uh, as I was thinking about it, I have taught on that using Pincus, both as an exhortation that we all need to be more like Pincus. We need to have a zeal for God's holiness. We need to take it upon ourselves to want to defend and honor God's holiness. But I've also actually taught the kind of the flip side of that as well as um, being a warning that don't be a Pincus in everything. Or, or at least have, maybe a better way to say it is have discretion on when you're acting as a Pincus and when you're just using Pincus as an excuse. What I mean by that is too often we have people that are, they've already got their spear in hand and they go walking around looking for people to, to offend them or, to, or to, for people who they think may be offending God and I'm going to go out and hunt them down. That's not what Pincus, of course, was doing. So we have to be careful of that. But for this morning, instead, I do want to take this, inst this incident, but I want to go a little bit broader than just looking at Pincus himself and the actions, his righteous actions of picking up that spear. And when I say I want to go broader, what I want to do is examine, use this, this, this incident as a way of examining one of the major functions that Torah plays in our life our lives as the disciples of Yeshua within the assembly of God's chosen people. Now, you probably may recall from previous teachings and discussions, both from the Bema, but also at Yeshiva, but just even in private one-on-one -on -one conversations, that we've taught Torah serves multiple purposes in our lives. And there's like, and I typically group them among, there's four analogies or metaphors that you can look at for what Torah does for us. First of all, Torah provides a, is a plumb line. And what I mean by that is it gives us that standard upon to which we, we measure ourselves. How do we know if we're walking righteously in the ways of the Lord? How do we know we are behaving, we are acting in a way that brings honor to God's name, that pleases God, that is in the right path, that we're not going astray and entering into sin. Well, Torah provides that plumb line for us to measure ourselves. Are our lives straight 
and uh, upright, or are they crooked? Secondly, Torah serves as a mirror, and similar to a plumb line in this instance, but it serves as a mirror that allows us to look at ourselves and to see, you know, what we look like. And, and oftentimes when we look in that mirror of Torah, that's when we do see our unrighteousness. It's when we see our sin. It serves as that mirror for us to see where we need to correct ourselves, where we need to perform teshuvah, to turn back to God. Thirdly, the, the Torah serves as a schoolmaster. It's an instructor for us. It teaches us the way to be righteous. It teaches us how to live out a life that honors God. And then finally, and this is what we're going to be focusing on today, Torah serves as a fence or a hedge. Now why do we say Torah serves as a fence? Well, when we say that, think about what, we have to think about what does a fence actually do. And the most basic function of a fence is because some people may say, well, a fence keeps things out, a fence keeps things in. It does those things, and we're going to be focusing on both those aspects of the fence. But ultimately what a fence does is it serves as a barrier that separates. So if the Torah is a fence, we say that, we should be asking ourselves, well, what, if it's a barrier, what is it separating? You know, what, you know, does it separate us from certain things? Does it separate other things? That's what we really have to be looking at. And so, as we think about the Torah, let's, we, we, and we think about how Torah separates, first of all, it separates those called out by God from those who remain in the world. So in the calling out of Avraham, and ultimately, though, all the children of Avraham, not just his physical descendants, because we know not all who are physically born of Avraham are of Avraham, but his spiritual descendants, those who have been called out, God's already made a separation between those who belong to him because they've responded to that call of being called out of the nations, separating those people from those who do not respond to that call. We should be familiar with this idea as this reality is at the root of what it means to be holy, to be what is uncommon. For if something is holy, if it's Kodesh, it literally has been separated from that which is common. And this is what God did with the children of Israel at the foot of Sinai. He called them out of Egypt, called them out of the nations, took them into the wilderness in order to separate them from the nations and the people around them and separate them onto himself. Exodus 19, 3-6 shows us this. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God, he separates the children of Israel from the other nations. And he does this, why? Well, we just read, to make them his peculiar people. To make them a nation separate unto him. 
But once he does that, what, what then you do with that? Are they just to remain in the wilderness forever, being this holy, separated people, worshiping him? Now, that's great, but that's not of much use. God had a purpose for Israel. They weren't supposed to just stay in the wilderness, separated from everything else, being this separate people, and abandon the rest of the world. He, he, his plan is to take them back into the world, to be his representatives, to be his mediators, that priesthood that he talks about here. But how does he keep them separate onto himself if he's going to be taking them back into the world ultimately? Well, what he does is he begins to construct a fence. He constructs a fence of instructions that if it would be followed, if the Israelites would follow it, would keep them as that separate people, would allow them to not be polluted by the other nations that they would intermingle with. It would therefore then keep them separate from sin. And we see this very idea stated by God in the promise of an angel who would go before Israel to guide them, which in turn they were to follow and to obey. Exodus 23, 20 through 25, and then 31 through 33 says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, or he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, to the Hittites, to the Pezzerites, to the Canaanites, and to the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you, and I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea Festilia, and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you shall drive them out before you, and you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely be a snare to you. Now much of this language here speaks in terms of a military conquest and driving out the nations of, the nations of Canaan from the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And we see the importance of these nations being driven out and that God did not want the Israelites intermingling with them. For, they, for he knew that they would be tempted to go after those false gods, to fall into the idolatry of the land. But beyond the physical separation between Israel and the Canaanite tribes, God also speaks here of the need for a spiritual separation from these nations. There's a need for the Israelites to always obey God's voice, to serve the Lord in all their ways, to remain in a single covenant with, with him, and to avoid sin. Well, what's going to make all of that possible? Torah. Torah is what makes it possible for, them to, for these called-out people that belong to God to live in accordance with him. Torah is what will make sure that they remain separated from the other nations if they remain in obedience, if they follow those instructions. Now one thing we have to remember when we, when we think about Torah being this fence, this barrier that separates, is that uh, like any fence, it actually separates in two ways. Yes, it's a barrier that keep th keeps things out, but it's also a barrier that keeps things in, in 
and it serves us simultaneously. It's just like on the farm when, when, I, when I was growing up. We had a small sh flock of sheep, and we had fences around those sheep at all times. Those fences were constructed as a means to keep the sheep to a confined area where we knew they'd be safe, or at least safer, than if we just let them, let them roam freely. The fence kept, kept them from st straying too far and ending up on a road or on the railroad tracks where they'd be hit, where they potentially could be hit by a vehicle. Likewise, it kept them from falling into ditches, into creeks, tripping into holes where there was a potential to break a, or sprain a limb. It, would, it protected, it kept them from going into the neighbor's fields or into their yards where they would potentially could cause damage and therefore be killed in retaliation. So it kept them into this confined safe place, but it also served as a barrier to keep things out. It was a hindrance to other animals, animals of prey such as stray dogs, wild dogs, or coyotes. We didn't want them getting into the sheep, so it served as a barrier. Didn't always prevent them 100%, but it, it did inhibit them. Likewise, as a small child, it kept me and my siblings, at least it was supposed to, we always found ways around it, but it was supposed to keep us out from playing among the sheep. And this was especially important during the breeding season when the ram would become more territorial, become more ill-tempered with intruders that was going among the ewes. So, it, you know, it's this barrier to keep things out. And just as the fence was meant to separate the sheep from the other things by keeping them to this confined space so that they wouldn't in intermingle with their surroundings, Torah does the very same thing. The commandments simultaneously keep Israel from going out and intermingling with the nations, while also preventing the nations from coming into the camp and polluting it with sin. We see both of these aspects play themselves out repeatedly through the scriptures, but let's look at the example from the parashah this week, what I started off with, where both aspects become a problem because the Israelites break the commandments, in essence, breaking down that fence that God had constructed around them. Now, how did they break down that fence? Well, first we see in Numbers 25, 1 through 4, which says, Now Israel remained in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So what's this an example of that we just read? Well, it's Israel going outside the fence of Torah. They're going outside the fence and they're intermingling with the nations around them. And what, what ends up happening? They intermingle. What do they, what do they start doing? Well, they start, it says they started sacrificing to other gods. They're not doing that in the camp. That would have been, uh, 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 been seen immediately. God would have taken the offense and Moses would have had to deal with it. Maybe Pincus would have been. Uh, this, that's how he would have um, responded. But you no, know, what they're doing is they're going outside the fence, they're going outside the camp, and they're joining themselves, as it says, to Baal Peor, to the god of the Moabites. Now the Israelites had simply minded the fence if they had not intruded outside. They never would have entered into that sin. They would have been protected from going astray like that. Why? Well, we have the commandments from Exodus 34, 14 through 16 that warn the following. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So we have a commandment right there, don't pursue the other gods. I mean, it's clear. We would, we'll see when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, as the Lord's still dealing with Israel there in Shittim right before they go into the land, God actually ends up building more of that fence of Torah and outright forbidding, not, um, you know, somewhat in response to this, it forbids the marrying of the Israelite, um, or the Israelite sons going and taking Moabite daughters. So that's going outside the fence. Next, though, here in Numbers, we see the other type of sinful intermingling, where the nations are brought into the camp once that fence has been broken down. Numbers 25, 6 through 9 shows. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. So we see this Israelite named Zimri. He's from the tribe of Simeon. He goes outside the fence, and he brings something back into the fence. He brings within. He brings this Midianite woman forward. If he had simply minded the fence of Torah, listened to the commands, the instructions that God had given, all of this could have been avoided. And in the punishment, his death ultimately would have been avoided as well, because what fence did he violate? Numbers 3, 38 states. Moreover, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tabernacle of meeting, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons, keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel. But the outsider who came near was to be put to death. From these examples, we see how Torah works both ways as this fence that we, we talk about all the time. Keep, thing, keep certain things out, keep certain things in. And then we also see the punishment that occurs when that fence is broken down. For in these instances, the sinners are slain. And that Moses was commanded to slay every Israelite who had joined themselves to Baal Peor in idolatry. And Pincus was rewarded by God for his execution of Zimri and the Midianite woman. And in this, then, we see the second aspect of Torah's division. So one division of Torah we've been talking about is Israel. It separates Israel from the nations. But there's a second aspect that Torah divides. Not only does it separate Israel from the nations, but it also separates life from death. We see the immediate result of physical death when one goes outside the protection of Torah in the story of the Israelites here, with the Moabites and the Midianite women. But even more so, we see it we see it in the choice of spiritual life and spiritual death that, that it also separates. You may recall from past teachings that I've talked about Torah as being a coin as well, in that it has two sides, and depending on which side you're looking at is, which, is whether you see life or you see death. There's one side that brings life, 
Those usually inside the fence are the ones who should be looking at Torah that way, but also that it brings death. And ideally, the ones outside the fence are the ones who would be seeing it that way. Because it depends on where you stand, whether you see Torah as this provider of life or if you see it as a harbinger of death. Well, if you keep that in mind, again, where you, you know, this, now bring it to this analogy we're using of the fence, this fence separates the two. It separates that life and the death. The coin's kind of on the fence there. And again, where you stand, inside or outside the fence, is what you're going to see. This division of life and death by Torah is made clear in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So if you consider that Torah not only separates us from the nations, but it does also separate us from death, we should begin to understand the true significance, its true significance as a means of protection for those who walk with God in Yeshua. Yes, we're covered by the blood. It covers, the blood covering is upon us, covers our sins. But the Torah remains there still as that protection for us as we walk with him, protecting us from the encroachment of sin, but also the encroachment of death. So Torah as a fence has this essential role in our lives. And once we understand that, we can then begin to look at a phenomenon that's developed over centuries and really over millennia, and how people who understand this value of Torah and understand that Torah is this protective fence, that what they end up doing, and unfortunately it ends up causing problems, it's the, the intention I think is always is meant, is usually well, almost in all cases, are, is, is, it's the right intention, but it ends up causing problems. And that phenomenon is man's inclination to think Torah is not enough, and therefore we have to build additional fences, additional fences of more ordinances and more traditions that are meant to keep us from approaching that fence and, and even being tempted to go over it or to break it down, to keep us from violating the mitzvot of the Torah. Now again, on the surface, the intent of constructing additional fences, I think it's well intended. And no doubt, many of the rabbis throughout the centuries who have added those fences to Torah, they, were, they had the right, they, they had the right they had, their hearts were in the right place, in the sense of they were trying to keep the children of Israel from violating the commandments that were given at Sinai to Moses. But despite these well-meaning intentions, we have to be careful of these other offenses, and we have to for multiple reasons. And I'm, and identify, I'm going to identify five reasons we can get into trouble with these additional offenses. 
especially if we begin to just rely on those additional fences. But before I do that, I want to read to you a story that ran in the Jerusalem Post several years ago. It gives you a good sense of the degree to which these fences are erected. And not only do you just have one fence, but you all, when you, once you start this process, you begin to build fence after fence after fence. So the story reads, the chief rabbinate's kashrut division sat down this week with the heads of Israel's um, Baruchas industry to discuss the shape of Baruchas and their impact on the general populace. Now, Baruchas is a, uh, a pastry dish that's popular in Israel and in the Middle East. Although seemingly innocuous, innocuous, the shape of these fried pastry delicacies can have a significant impact on one's spiritual well-being. Owing to a set of unwritten principles regarding the shape of these Middle Eastern snacks that is traditionally indicated to the discerning customer the contents of the filling that lie therein. Baruka is a staple of the Israeli diet, come in many different varieties. Some are filled with mashed potato, some with spinach, cheese, mushrooms, or a combination thereof. Other types of barukas can also be filled with, gourm with ground meat, such as um, sagaram, which themselves also come in several varieties, including non-meaty versions. Widely accepted convention within the barukas industry has been to form into triangular shapes any of these tempting pastries containing cheese or other dairy products. Baruka is free of any dairy product, the potato baruka being a classic example, or shaped in, a more, or shaped in more angular rectangles or cubist squares. In this way, the people who adhere to Jewish dietary laws, which stipulate that one must not consume dairy products for a certain number of hours after eating meat, would be less likely to mistakenly eat a cheese or spinach baruka, for example, shortly after having eaten anything of a meaty nature. Fortunately, adherence to the baruka shape convention has become somewhat flaky in recent years. That's a really bad pun in this article because barukas have it's a flaky pastry. Um, and this has led to concern that people may, be inadvertent, may inadvertently be eating right-angled pastries which nevertheless contain dairy products. It was agreed that the triangular and rectangular convention of the past would be more strictly adhered to. Other proposals were, were examined, such as making um, cigarum with ground meat noticeably longer than those without. Finger-shaped barucas containing no dairy to be closed at the ends, with their dairy cousins to be open at the extremities. The pastry chiefs were generally receptive for the proposals, although they expressed certain caveats, and at the end of the lengthy meeting of a series of guidelines were drawn up with which will in short order be published by the rabbinate. Now what's going on here? Why are these why are the why is the rabbinate so concerned with the shape of a pastry as it relates to the Torah? Well, to understand why such meeting why such a meeting and ruling was necessary, we have to begin pulling back the layers of rabbinic law. And this is done by seeing that this story is about the construction of fences by the rabbis. In fact, a fence that builds upon multiple rows of fences. So we have a fence being constructed here, the shape of the barukas. They, kind of a rule coming down. Triangle if it contains dairy. That's now a fence. Why do they want that fence? Well, because of the fence that exists that you cannot eat dairy and meat within several hours of each other. Now why does that fence exist? Because that's not Torah. Well, there's a fence, you know, there's several hours separation. That's not in Torah. Well, there's a fence that says you don't eat dairy and meat together. Now, where does that come from? Because that's not in Torah either. 
And when I say not in Torah, I realize I'm saying the written Torah that was given to Moses at Sinai. Because an Orthodox Jew would say, oh, it is Torah, it's oral Torah, but I'm talking about written Torah. Well, there's a fence that says, you know, don't eat dairy and meat together, including like cheese and chicken, um, because there's another fence that says you don't eat dairy and beef together. That actually makes a little more sense because the least coming from the same animal and we know, you know, the, the, the dairy and chicken's always been odd to me because chickens don't produce milk, but there we are. Again, because of all this fence building. So why do we have this fence, do not eat dairy and beef together? Well, that's an understanding of Exodus 23, 19 that says thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. So you have, there we get to the fence that God constructed. God constructed this fence in Exodus 23, 19. But that specifically is a, but that's relating to a specific act. Don't take the child that you've saw of the, of, a, of like a cow or it could be another, it could be a goat or some other animal and don't boil the meat of that young animal in its mother's milk. Because that was a pagan practice. That's what God's forbidding. He's specifically forbidding a pagan practice that occurred among the nations around him. To make sure that fence is never crossed, though, then, like I said, over the centuries, the rabbis have built all these additional fences to now we're now concerned about the shape of a pastry that may not even have any meat in it, but it all goes back to this original fence. Now, I raise this example only to show how far-reaching these additional fences can go. Talk about as Yeshua talked about the straining of gnats. This is a perfect example of that. And as I go through now these five potential areas where I, I believe problems arise by creating these additional fences, keep this example as mine because most of them can be applied to most of these different um, problems can be applied to it. Now, the first two ways these extra fences can become prob problematic, they're related, but they work in opposite directions. Because again, and it's dependent what direction it's working on, again, what you believe and where you stand in relationship to the Torah. The first perspective is to see Torah as something that needs to be guarded and kept untainted by the actions of men. Thus, you create additional fences to keep anyone from ever approaching the Torah so you that you don't profane it. So it's like the Torah itself is what you're trying to protect. You're trying to protect that fence so you build outside fences around it. These, these additional fences, therefore, become ever-expanding rings around the Torah. And this is how rabbinic Judaism typically views the additional rulings that they create. It's to protect the written word of God. It's to protect that written Torah. And because these additional fences are there to do that, it becomes very important to study those other, those, those man-made fences around it. And in fact, rabbinic Judaism teaches that the purpose of the oral Torah is to create that fence around the written Torah. Because we don't want people approaching that written Torah and ever coming into violation of it. Now, the problem of this is twofold. First of all, it makes the incorrect assumption that Torah needs to be protected. Like I said, even with Zimri, Zimri, or not, I'm sorry, Pincus. What Pincus did was righteous because he was honoring God's holiness. In a, in, in a way, he was defending his holiness. But in reality, God's holiness doesn't need defended. God can take care of himself. His holiness can't really be touched by anyone. But... So it's assuming, though, that Torah needs protected, rather than seeing Torah as what? Torah is what I've argued is, Torah is actually the protection for us. Secondly, 
by building these ever-expanding outward fences, it leads to an individual focusing their study on the outer fences created by man rather than the actual fence that God established. And we see this in rabbinic Judaism where more time in the yeshiva is spent studying Talmud rather than the actual written Torah. And in fact, in Talmud itself, there are passages that suggest one receives a greater benefit from studying the Gemara and the Mishnah, those are the two parts of the, of the Talmud, than actually studying the written Torah, the five books of Moses. So that's one problem we have. Now the second perspective that can arise, which is problematic, is that we can view Torah properly, in that, again, it protects us, but in seeing it as such, we, be, we begin to build fences rather than outwardly protecting it. We have to, you know, Torah is there to protect us, but then we begin to build more fences inwardly. We've got to protect ourselves, believing as though the Torah itself is not sufficient. Therefore, we begin to box ourselves into very narrow approaches to life that make living inside the protection of Torah uninviting. and lo It looks burdensome. It looks like this heavy burden that's placed upon people. And it becomes problematic because it divorces those who belong to God to, to, to too great of an extent from that instruction. Where the righteousness and the benefit of following Torah can't be seen. And even the good news appears as too great of a yoke to bear. Thus we isolate ourselves too much from the world as well. That the wisdom and the benefit of Torah is lost to the nations because we've, just, we've pulled ourselves, we've restricted ourselves too much from it. This wouldn't be the case if we would just let Torah exist in its own right, on its own. What I mean by this, let me give you an example. Um, I'm going to go back to the farm again. So like I said, we had a fence for the sheep that kept our sheep in. And um, this fence, they had a, a fenced-in pen, and then we also had a, a grazing metal for them, and there was a lane that went between the two, and there was a fence along that lane. Well, as the sheep would do, as we're prone to do as well, the sheep would go against the fence. They would push against it. They would try to eat the grass and everything on the outside of it. So, you're, you know, they're pushing up against it. You're worried about them breaking it down. Times they wouldn't. We'd have to go and mend the fence. So eventually, to stop this, what my dad did is he ran one electrical, electrical wire fence on both sides of it along this lane so that the sheep... You know, if they got too close, you know, we built a fence inside the original fence, they'd get pricked. Now, actually, the sheep, they learned it, they stayed away from it. But I remember one time I was walking along the fence, and my dog, Gus, was walking along, and he was just sniffing around as a dog does, and, you know, the fence isn't even meant for him. But what happens? He bumped into the live electrical wire, got electrocuted, ran off yipping and everything, and it took weeks for us to get him to go back down that lane again because he wanted nothing to do with it. If the fence, now what I'm, what I'm pointing, trying to point out here is if the fence, what the original fence was just there, the dog walks along, he's fine. Things are great. It's inviting to be inside the fence. That's where the dog's master is. That's where the dog is also protected and does great. But all of a sudden, there was another fence that boxed it in a little more. That became unpleasant, and the dog wanted nothing to do with the path. That's a problem we have to be careful of when we build additional fences as well, trying to box in ourselves. To that person from the outside, that, that doesn't look pleasant, that doesn't look enjoyable, that doesn't look to be beneficial, and actually I pricked myself against the fence, I got electrocuted, and I want nothing to do with it. 
And this certainly should not be how the nations, therefore, view those who, of us who pursue this Torah-directed life. They shouldn't see our lives as being burdensome and, and troublesome because we live this way. Because if we're living within the Torah, it actually should be a light to the other nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8 says, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? So those are the first two problems. Again, either we just continually build outward or we continually build inward. Now, a third potential problem with man-made fences is that they can cause confusion and they can cause unnecessary arguments between brothers and sisters in Yeshua, especially among those who do not take the time to actually read and study the Torah directly on their own. The confusion I'm talking about is not knowing what is God's commandments, what actually does God say, versus, and therefore knowing what sin actually is, Versus what are God's commandments, or I'm sorry, what are man's commandments? What are the fences man built? And therefore, they're not a sin, it's only a violation of tradition or culture or community standards. And I'm not saying traditions and community standards can't be important, but we have to recognize that when we bump up against those, we're not actually sinning. And therefore, confusion reigns because people make false assumptions about each other because they're making false assumptions about Torah and the nature of sin itself. If they violate an ordinance of man, um, they then may be told, well, you know, hey, that's okay, that's not a big deal. When they violate an ordinance of God in ignorance, well, they may think likewise, it's no big deal. Because they don't recognize the two things. This confusion and ignorance then leads to division and non-edifying arguments between brothers and sisters in Yeshua over what is the ordinance of man, what is a commandment of God, and to what degree one should follow or intentionally ignore the ordinance of, ordinances of men. If you want to get a sample of this, go on an internet message board of Messianic and Hebrew Roots believers and see them discuss how you observe a specific commandment. Take the feasts, you know, um, uh, unleavened bread's a good example of this. How do you actually observe unleavened bread? What can you eat? What can't you eat? It's nothing but confusion and a big mess when you go into those conversations. Everyone's got a different opinion. Everyone is arguing about what's allowed, what isn't allowed, and it's because they're all looking at different fences. They're all looking at, they're looking at the original commandment, but then either they're doing one of two things. They're reading, they're reading other people's fences that have been put around it, or they're actually constructing their own fences and then trying to defend that rather than defending the, 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 um, the, the commandment itself. Now, the fourth potential problem, which relates to this third one, is that it also confuses where authority rests. 
Specifically, does ultimate authority rest in Yeshua, who constructed the fence of Torah, or does the authority rest in subsequent teachers, rabbis, and theologians who have constructed these additional fences? When we look at Yeshua's interactions with the rabbis and sages of his day and the arguments he got into with them, we actually see that most of the disagreements were about where does this authority rest? Where is the authority of the commandments? The most obvious case is found in Mark 7, where Yeshua directly states that some of the Jewish authorities of his day were substituting their authority as establishing the traditions and the ordinances of their own creation, that they were substituting these in place of God's authority as established in the judgments and the ordinances of Torah. Mark 7, 6 through 13 reads, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, but you keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your traditions which you have handed down, and many such things you do. These third and fourth problems, like I said, they're related, um, the problems that arise with these additional fences. Let me give you the, the, the best example, because it's the first example. In the garden, God created a fence that restricted Adam and Eve's behavior. What was it? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's essentially the only fence he put up. When the serpent come, came and they tempted Eve, Eve, what does Eve say the fence is? She doesn't say, don't eat from it. She says, what? Don't touch it. There was an Adam most, must have created this second fence. Because if you can't touch it, you can't eat it. Again, kind of makes some sense. But what's the problem? Eve takes the apple because of the temptation. She takes it. Before she eats it, what, you know, she just violated this fence. She just crossed this fence that Adam created. What does that do? Well, I didn't die. Now there's confusion. What is the commandment? And because there's confusion, what's the authority behind the commandment? Is this other fence of not eating it? Is it, well, I didn't die when I touched it. Would I die when I eat it? Where's the authority lie? Does it lie with Adam? Does it lie with God? That's the problem that these additional fences can create. Finally, the fifth and the greatest potential problem with additional fences is that they neglect what is most important about our relationship with Torah. And that is where Torah should be sitting within our heart. For if God's instructions reside in our heart, the need for additional, any additional fences will comp should completely disappear. For our hearts will restrain us from pushing against it, jumping over or knocking down the fence of Torah in our lives. And we see this understanding of the Torah throughout the scriptures. First, Moses proclaimed this understanding to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. 
For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that we should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Later, centuries later, Jeremiah, the prophet, living after Israel and Judah had broken the covenant with God and had trampled down the fence of Torah by mixing with the nations and inviting their pagan worship among the children of Israel. Jeremiah spoke similarly of a day of redemption and restoration when the words that we just heard by Moses would be fulfilled and God's instructions would be implanted in the hearts of Jacob's children. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus we see here that Torah, God's instructions, were always meant to reside in the hearts of those who belong to him. Thus in its function as a fence that separates Israel from the nations, and more importantly separates life from death, Torah also separates our hearts from sin. But it does so not as a physical fence that remains cold and separate from us, but it's to be inside of us. We're to have an intimate knowledge of it, and because of that, therefore, have an intimate knowledge of God and God's will. And that knowing that understanding will then also grow in lo- will, will then also grow our love for God, and it will in itself serve as a fence for sin, from sin. And so if we begin constructing other fences, again, even with good intention, we have to ask ourselves, are we, putting fen- are we putting distance between ourselves and God when we do that? Do these fences separate our heart from God's will? Are these fences, in fact, rebellion against God in that we have decided his fence, his Torah, his instruction is not enough? And therefore, we feel the need, or maybe it's we feel that we know better than God, to construct fences of our own authority. And so with this thought in mind, let us close with the words of Solomon, who expresses this very idea in Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Amen. 
It's our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands, and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs, and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow, and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings, the holy one, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven and establishes earth's foundation, and the seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our king, there is nothing beside him. As it is written in his Torah, and you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is none other. Amen. Amen, amen. Let us stand together.